I say there are four buildings that define America. The White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, and the New York Stock Exchange. So whether it's their own savings for, again, their children's education, their retirement, their financial freedom, or the pension fund, but for teachers, for firefighters, for auto workers, those pension funds are invested in the market. So how the market performs, the competitiveness of U.S. capital markets really touches their lives directly every day and can help the long-term competitiveness of the country. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Total Michigan, where we interview ordinary Michiganders who are doing some pretty extraordinary things. I am your host, Cliff Duvinois. Today, we got a very unique guest. And uh, if you went and you listened to my interview with the CEO of Bigby Coffee, Mike McFall, uh, he reached out to me after our interview and said, hey, I've got the perfect guest for your show. And I couldn't believe it when I saw it, but I was like, I got to talk to him, and he's gracious enough to give us some time today. So ladies and gentlemen, today we're talking with John Tuttle, Vice Chairman of the New York Stock Exchange and the president of the NYSE Institute. John, how are you? It's great to be with you. And uh, we do share a mutual friend in Mike McFall, who is an extraordinary Michigander and, uh, and a dear friend of mine now. Yes, I absolutely loved his interview. So if you had not, hadn't had an opportunity, go and make sure to check him out. So, John, let's talk about you. <laughs> We're going to make this all about you. Oh, so boy. why don't you tell us where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm a proud seventh generation Michigander. My father grew up in Wald Lake. My mother grew up in Detroit. I am from Milford, born and raised. Very proud that my folks still reside in the house I came home from the hospital to. My wife is from Milford as well. So I have deep roots to the state, to, to Oakland County as well. So, so grew up there, went to school in Southeast Michigan, went off to school Eastern Michigan, and then a couple other places after that and stumbled my way to New York City, but never lost my love or my ties to Michigan. Boy, I tell you, once Michigan gets in your blood, it just never leaves. Yeah, it's pumping through <laughs> it as we speak. You will, and, and I know, as somebody who's spent like, you know, a couple decades outside of the state, Michigan always comes back. Yeah. So what did you study when you were at Eastern? Yeah, so I, I did grow up in, in, in Milford. I went off to Eastern Michigan. I went there to go play football. And I, I have to just tell you a little bit of context there because it, it was cause of some frustration within my, my, my family because I was born, raised, and indoctrinated a University of Michigan fan by my father, who is ah. a very proud alum, has had the same season tickets at the big house for a half a century and wanted his <laughs> son to, to go off to the University of Michigan. So I went off to Eastern Michigan to play football, and that was strike one. Strike two was then I went on to Notre Dame uh, for graduate oh, school. That, I guess yes, where strike yes. three was I married a Michigan State Spartan. So I didn't do anything <laughs> south of the border, but and make my way to Columbus. I, I certainly position myself as the black sheep of the family. But I, I did go off to Eastern Michigan. I went there to play football. And and after a season, ended up getting injured, not playing football, playing basketball in a friend's driveway at that time. And then oh. realizing that there probably was more to life than me pretending that there was a career for me in football. So I, I explored some different avenues, different paths, which led me to where I am today. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Because it's a little bit of a, a stretch to go from playing football to basically almost like one of the top positions for the stock exchange. So I guess taking a step back here for a second, what, how did that path go? Like when you decided maybe football isn't a career for me, <laughs> what was that next path that you took? Sure. I, it's not that interesting, but I'll give you the story. So I, uh, I ended up breaking my, my ankle in, in a friend's driveway playing basketball, and I was sitting there. I thought, what am I going to do? And I'd always been interested in current events, public policy, and, and I thought, you know what? I'm going now. I have a little bit more bandwidth. I'm not playing football. I'm not not having to do all the things that go along with that. But maybe I'll apply for an internship with my congressman. 
And so I was not from a politically connected family. I was not tied into any political party at the time. And so I went online, which was still, believe it or not, a relatively new concept at that time that you could go online and find information. But I went online and I found out what I needed to do to get an internship for my local congressman, or uh, I should say apply for an internship with my local congressman. I needed three things. I needed to draft an essay. I needed to send my resume and get three letters of recommendation. I thought, all right, easy enough. I'll do that. So I went off and got that together. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? Again, I'm not from some donor family or anything like that. Why don't I see what the requirements are for a White House one? And I was, I think, 19 years old at the time, and it was immediately after 9-11. They had cut the program down from, I don't know, several dozen people to probably about a dozen folks. And lo and behold, it was the same requirements. It was send an essay, send your resume, and send three letters of recommendation. I thought, all right, I can double dip here. And fast forward, I never heard back from my congressman. I ended up getting the best spot in the White House. And fortunately, to this date, at least, it's been the only job I've ever had to apply for in my life. So the rest is a lot of luck after that. I ended up at the White House shortly after President Bush became president, shortly after 9-11 as well. Got to know some wonderful people. Ended up Going back to Michigan, finishing school as fast as I possibly could. And the day I graduated, I got a call saying, can you come down and return to Washington, D.C.? But this time, we want you to work in Secretary Rice's office. And Condoleezza Rice was just nominated and confirmed to be the president's secretary of state. And I thought, sure. So my first day at the State Department was her first day at the State Department. And just as an aside, again, politics aside, she is truly one of the most wonderful Americans and people I've ever come across. And 20 years later, when she's in lower Manhattan or we're in the same town, I may be in Palo Alto, where she is still has a senior role at Stanford. She'll reach out or I'll reach out and we'll get together for coffee. And again, better part of a, a quarter century later, we're still close. I was in my 20s and, and she was gracious enough to give me the time and, and opportunity. And so from there, I spent a number of years and I got to travel to all kinds of amazing places around the world. I Everything from being part of the president's delegation to the Winter Olympics to going to rebel leaders' funerals in southern Sudan to being in the tribal regions of Pakistan to Kosovo and everywhere in between. Yeah, the monetary compensation wasn't very high, but the compensation and kind of life experience was just unmatched. So it was an incredible life experience. And for some reason, I've always been in a hurry just to, I don't know where the destination is. Yeah, And I figured, oh, I want to go to graduate school. So I, I wanted to find a, a business school program that would allow me to crank out an MBA in the shortest amount of time possible. I don't know if it's the wisest strategy, but it's the one I pursued at the time. So I convinced the University of Notre Dame to let me in there and to uh, complete <laughs> was traditionally a two-year program in about 11 months. And so I cranked oh, that out. Oh, sweet Moses. Yeah. And- And when I graduated, I thought I was either going to go down to Washington, D.C. and get back involved in maybe the Treasury Department or something like that, or go off to law school. I had applied and gotten into a number of places, and so that was part of the plan as well. And I ended up getting a call from somebody who had worked for the president for six years as governor, five years as president, who had left the administration to go up to the New York Stock Exchange. And he was somebody I had worked with at the State Department and a great friend to this day. And he said, John, I need you to come to New York. I said, I have no interest in moving to New York City. He says, here's the trade. You do it for six months. If you hate it, I'll be the best reference you ever had and consider it to be another degree. And so I packed my bags. I moved to New York. I started the next week, and that was the better part of two decades ago. So I I came to the New York Stock Exchange at a time when it was going global. It wasn't your grandfather's stock exchange anymore. They had shifted from being this kind of public utility, member-owned, hierarchical organization to a public company, to being for-profit, publicly traded, multi-asset class, multi-geography. 
And they quickly learned in the first maybe five minutes, if not the first 15 minutes, <laughs> that exchanges are a business where economies of scale come in very quickly. You can yes. put two exchanges together, remove one fixed cost base, and realize your cost and revenue synergies very quickly. So we started, or NYSE started off on this strategy to start acquiring other exchanges around the world. And what they learned in those first few minutes was that every country has a flag, an army, and a stock exchange. So there's a lot of national pride that goes along with it. Yes. And so I was brought in to work our way down the food chain instead of up the food chain, but down the food chain when it, come to deal, when it came to dealing with policymakers, so regulators, central bank governors, finance ministries, the diplomatic corps, because that's a lot of the folks I built relationships with during my time at the State Department. And so we ended up acquiring the stock exchanges in Paris, Lisbon, Brussels, Amsterdam, and then percentages of different exchanges or portions of other exchanges in Brazil, Poland, Qatar, and around the world. So I got to do that for my first few years, run international at the New York Stock Exchange, and then, and then was very fortunate for the first time in two centuries, we were the target of an acquisition rather than the acquirer. Right. And we were bought or a bid was made for us, and it took a year's worth of kind of regulatory hurdles being cleared by a company called Intercontinental Exchange, 14-year-old quasi-startup out of Atlanta, Georgia, out of our now chairman's spare bedroom, and made a bid for the New York Stock Exchange. We got acquired, and I, I want to say of the you know, top 50 people at the New York Stock Exchange a year later, 48 of them were gone, and I was still there, and it either meant I was cheap, I knew something, or a combination <laughs> of the two. But it ended up being an incredible opportunity for me because we completely transformed the culture and the place. And I, I was made head of corporate affairs. Shortly after that, I ended up running our largest business, which is about a half billion dollar plus business for us. Flagship is the person in front of me was the head of running before was 30 years older than me. So it really went from being a seniority-based organization to complete meritocracy. And and so I was fortunate enough to turn those many of the businesses, which on an absolute basis were not in bad shape at all. We're very good businesses, but on a relative basis for how they had been historically and how they should be, we're not where they needed to be. And I was fortunate enough that I was given the opportunity to turn those businesses around and by all financial and operating metrics, they've never performed better. I add on all of our new business, all our funds businesses, our iconic 11 Wall Street building. as our chief operating officer for a number of years of the New York Stock Exchange and oversaw a whole host of financial and operational projects there. And today I am uh, vice chair of the New York Stock Exchange, and I am also president of the NYC Institute, which is our public policy arm, and really focused on making sure that policymakers in Washington and in capitals around the world understand the important role that public markets and public companies play in driving inclusive economic growth and helping ensure the long-term competitiveness of U.S. capital markets. But I've given you a, a, a full download of the past 20 years and about the past four minutes here. But I will say every <laughs> moment I am not doing that, that job or in New York, you'll find me in Michigan, either in Milford or in idyllic northern Michigan. So there's like 50 things we need to unpack. Oh, boy. So we'll just take them one at a time. <laughs> so I know you said that you had, you, you've always had this interest in like public policy. Right. And government and even politics. So where do you think that came from? I think I would like to think that one of the attributes I bring to, to any relationship or business is that I have a high level of curiosity. It's also an attribute I look for when hiring people as well. And I think the ability to understand what a lot of people are focused on, understand that you can make an impact in a lot of different ways, maybe never as much as you can from the inside. So getting as close as you can to the inside has been there. And so I just think it was a high level of curiosity. My 
my family has always been, I said, we weren't big donors or active politically, but been very interested in it and good citizens, I'd like to think. So I think being good stewards of the state, of what we've been given and all that is is what initially sparked that interest. And it's I'm the Forrest Gump of finance and of the <laughs> policy world. I just found myself in the right place in the right time with the right people and kept on running. What I would also like to explore too is it seems like, and this is definitely a good thing, it seems like no matter where you go, somebody is reaching out to tap you for that next big thing. Yeah. So when you're going into these places and you're working, talk to us a little bit about what it is that you're doing inside of there that has made you a, a little bit of a hot commodity. Like I said, people are tapping you saying, hey, we want you to come back to Washington. Hey, we want you to come out to the stock exchange. We're talking big players here are reaching out. So what, talk to us a little bit about when you go into these environments and work. What is your thought process when you're going in there? Yeah, sure. It's always putting the mission in front of your own, in front of your own interests or your own agenda. Park your agenda at the door. We're all in here to achieve something together. And I think a lot of people say that, but to actually do it requires you to internalize that type of philosophy and it almost becomes subconscious or just natural for you. And that's what, when you find yourself surrounded by people who are putting the mission ahead of themselves or their own agenda, you can achieve great things and those are the type of people you want to be around. So that's the type of behavior I've tried to model throughout my life and through my career. And fortunately for me, it's paid off. I've also learned along the way through that. And I gave you a little bit of a, a glimpse into just how I got my foot in the door with some of these opportunities. But really, you realize that sometimes the best outcomes come when you find people who, I don't want to say have disrespect for, but have little obligation to the status quo. And when I talk to students, I talk to kids at Eastern Michigan all the time. My wife and I were fortunate enough to endow a scholarship there. We've we funded a whole host nice. of projects there, which again, I'm just a simple kid from Southeast Michigan, but I... I what it allows me to do is spend time with this next generation of students and leaders. And I find it so inspiring and exciting because that's it makes me bullish on Michigan, bullish on America when you meet people with this level of enthusiasm and intellect and all that. But they often ask some question about, well, how do you how do you get to how do you get a job like you have? Or how did you get your foot in the door? It goes back to not having the respect for the status quo and or not being bound by it, I should say. Right. And it's don't go through the HR process. Don't go online and apply. Find your find the person you have commonality with. I'm sure there's somebody in the organization that went to your same school or is from your hometown or something like that. Find them and reach out to them. Focus on the relationship. Yeah, focus on the relationship because you'd be surprised. More often than not, you never know when they're going to open that door and give you a helping hand. And it may not be on day one, but it may come years later down the road. But that's what life is all about. And that's how you should be thinking about life. And so, yeah, so that's, I think, one of those attributes that... Yeah, it's kept me around is that I'm willing not just to to follow the well-worn path, but to explore new ones. For our audience, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to ask some more questions <laughs> for John. So we'll see you after the break. Are you enjoying these amazing stories? Michigan is full of people that are doing some pretty extraordinary things. If you want these amazing stories sent directly to your inbox, head over to TotalMichigan.com, enter your email address and get them today. What are you going to get? I'm glad you asked. First, you're going to join our awesome Michigan community, and it is quite awesome. Second, you will get an email that includes the top five interviews from the show sent directly to your inbox. This is going to include the powerful lessons that we've learned from these amazing people. Third, you're going to get exclusive behind-the-scenes information about the show. There's a lot of things that are happening to grow this movement beyond the confines of just a radio show and a podcast. You'll get advanced notice of upcoming guests and early access to their interviews. You'll also get a link to our Facebook group. 
Now to get all these goodies, just head over to TolaMichigan.com slash join. Enter your email address and join our awesome community today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Total Michigan. I am your host, Cliff Duvenois. Today, we're talking with John Tuttle, Vice Chairman of the New York Stock Exchange and the President of the NYSE Institute. Got your full title in? Ah, uh, you got me. Boom. There we it's go. It's a mouthful. Yes. So I'm actually learning a lot from this conversation, and I want to explore a little bit more here about about the New York Stock Exchange. What I would like to do is I'd like to first take a step back here because I know that a lot of people have a lot of perceptions about the New York Stock Exchange. What I would like to do is from your standpoint there, what is maybe like one or two of the of the common myths that you see when it comes to the stock exchange? Yeah, absolutely. More changes happened at the New York Stock Exchange in the last 20 years than the preceding two centuries. We are not your grandfather's stock exchange anymore. We're a very diverse and dynamic organization that's focused on technology and probably touches, if not impacts, the lives of every American every single day, one way or another. So we operate 12 exchanges, seven clearinghouses around the world, uh, the NYC and our broader organization. So that's everything from the New York Stock Exchange, where we trade shares or list and trade shares in 2,400 companies. Those companies are from 46 countries around the world. But most importantly, those companies employ 43 million people directly. So it's an incredibly large platform that's there. We also operate the world's exchanges for soft commodities like coffee, sugar, cotton, cocoa, orange juice. And each and every day, we process, let's say, north of a trillion unique messages a day in a median response time of under 26 microseconds. So think about the throughput and the technology that's required to be able to provide that type of that type of capacity and systems. And so we're an incredible organization. We're a for-profit, publicly traded company. And one of the things that that, for better or worse, I would flag, is that I say there are four buildings that define America. The White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court— and the New York Stock Exchange. And when <laughs> the market's up, they show it on the news. When it's down, they show it on the news. When people want to protest things that have absolutely nothing to do with the New York Stock Exchange, they do it from an, in front of our building. Yes, they do. But it's, but it's a reminder of the importance of the platform. And I mentioned, you heard me rattle off the stats that our listed companies employ 43 million people directly. But this is a place where people can save for their save their money and invest their money for their children's education, for their own retirement, or even their own financial freedom and the ability to pursue their version of the American dream, however they define it. And one of the things that is very special about our country, and it's not popular to say, is part of the reason why we enjoy the quality of life we do in this country. And we're able to export it to other parts of the world is because of the system that we operate. And yes, it can always get better. Yes, it can always be more inclusive. But the ability for an entrepreneur or a company to access capital, to grow and ex- to actually launch a business, to grow and expand it, to tap into new geographies, create new products, and ultimately create jobs along the way is unique in this world. Yes. But the other side of that, like I said, the ability for investors to be part of that journey and be part of that success is equally as special as well. And so that's why I wake up each and every day trying to find ways we can not only make sure we're continuing to evolve to meet the market demands, but we're opening our doors to the broadest number of constituents possible. Because when they're successful, that's when we're successful. And then that's good for not only states like Michigan, but countries like the United States and really the world. And you know, you bring up a good point there when you were talking about parents being able to save for their kids' education, because I'm thinking about the proliferation of 401ks, right? Union pension funds are all now linked and tied into 
the stock exchange. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, like I said, it touches the life of, of everyday Americans one way or another, directly or indirectly each and every day. So whether it's their own savings for, again, their children's education, their retirement, their financial freedom, or the pension fund. But for teachers, for firefighters, for auto workers, those pension funds are invested in the market. So how the market performs, the competitiveness of the U.S. capital markets really touches their lives directly every day and can help for the long-term competitiveness of the country. And so one of the things I've been very focused on is making sure that our markets are as accessible to the largest number of people and the, the broadest set of constituents awesome. as possible. What I mean by that is technology has made markets much more efficient, allowed a lot more accessibility. So you think about 401ks and other products, that are, savings products that are out there, but also think about just using technology to buy or sell a stock or an exchange-traded fund. You used to have, you know, 20 years ago, you used to have to walk and you know, drive to a broker's office, walk in there, pay them a $30 commission on either side of that trade and wait for a few days for it to be processed and for your money to go through. Now trading is, and, and frankly, access to information is instantaneous and essentially free. And so now that creates more opportunity for more people to participate. But where I've spent a lot of my time is creating more products. How do we make sure that playing field is as level as possible? How does somebody in Copper Harbor, Michigan, or Detroit, Michigan, how do we make sure that they have the same access to the same opportunities with the same protections as somebody who may be at a a hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut, or a big asset manager in Manhattan? Let's make opportunity available for all folks. And also let's think about because you're poor doesn't mean you're dumb. Because you're rich doesn't mean you're smart. And so how can we give people who may not have the means at this moment access to these type of opportunities? They should be able to invest in things beyond just stocks and bonds. And if we can provide them access to more products with the protection and liquidity of the public markets, that's what we should be doing. Amen. <laughs> Preaching the choir. Yeah, you are. I'm, I'm all for, I'm all about capitalism. I'm all about free market. So I'm absolutely enjoying this and I'm learning a lot. What I'd like to do is I want to circle back to something that you talked about before. And that is something I did not know. The stock exchange had been acquired mm -hmm. by this group out of Georgia. And you're talking about the New York Stock Exchange acquiring other yeah. trading globally around the world. This I did not know. Yeah, that this could actually happen. So, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So, I mentioned on the onset of the program that we went out and acquired various exchanges around the world, and for the first time in our two hundred plus year history, in twenty twelve, we became the target of an acquisition rather than the acquirer. Right. And an amazing company was founded out of Atlanta, Georgia, with by probably one of America's least known but greatest entrepreneurs, a guy named Jeff Sprecher, uh, who I have a very close relationship with. And he was an entrepreneur on the West Coast who was looking for a way to, to hedge or manage the price of energy. So he was building these power plants. He and a colleague were building these power plants on the West Coast. And this is the time of the rolling blackouts, if you remember yeah, well, that. Yeah, I remember those. But you were probably living in California was, at the time. Yep. And so part of that was just because of total mismanagement of the energy markets. And so we thought, how can we actually price electricity and allow electricity to trade. And he bought a fledgling technology company for a dollar out of Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> and locked himself in his spare bedroom and built this company, which today now is north of a $60 billion market cap company. Beautiful. And along the way, the, that exchange was roughly 12 to 14 years old when they acquired the New York Stock Exchange. And over the preceding decade or so, the New York Stock Exchange went from being this kind of large member-owned, not-for-profit, quasi-public utility slash old boys club in a way. Right. And had to become 
you know, it went public, it changed due to regulatory and market pressures, it became more efficient, more shareholder and customer focused, leaner. And on the other end of it, you had Intercontinental Exchange, found on this guy's spare bedroom. And it, as it grew and expanded, had become a little more structured and a little more process oriented. And so when the transaction happened, while both sides had moved towards the center on this continuum over the preceding decade, there was still a gap. And you can only have one culture in an organization, unless you're Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, and you can really fully decentralize. Well, Warren like that. Buffett can do yeah, whatever he's he a wants. special man. <laughs> but un- unless you're Warren Buffett, you, you you can only have one culture in your organization. And we we brought on the ice culture, which really served me, I think, at a time in my life and my career. And so, what is that? What's an example of what that looks like? It's the I don't care how long you've been here. It's a meritocracy. Who's going to deliver? Who's focused on the mission? Who's put focus on putting the mission before their their own agenda, and who's focused on, again, disrupting the status quo, saying, I don't have to wait my turn. Let's get this done. And and the stat I give is that prior to our deal with ICE, I think 20% of the company was within five layers of the CEO. So I think the employees with five layers. Two years after the acquisition, 99% of the employees were within five layers of the CEO. And that's not a euphemism for saying we ripped out middle management. It's a, it's a way of saying we brought management very close to the front lines of the business. Yeah. flat. And that allowed us to evolve. And that's why you know, when I was fortunate enough to start taking up senior leadership positions in the organization, I was able to implement changes. I was able to know what needed to be done and be able to deliver what were the best financial and operating results in the history, the then 220-plus year history of the New York Stock Exchange. That's awesome. And I could spend forever and a day just (laughs) on that concept of leadership. I will say that of the companies that I've looked at, it always seems to me that the closer the C-suite is to the worker, the better the company is. 100%. Versus the ones that are completely removed. And I've never even been down to the manufacturing floor. I don't even know what we produce here. Exactly. And I think what we realize is you want to operate a very lean and efficient organization. You don't want to you don't want to cut to the bone or kind of starve the organization, but you want to make sure you're you're operating efficiently because that allows people to fill gaps, that allows them to find opportunities and you have little you don't have any room for internal politics because you're spending all your time there's there's plenty of external things to work on. Yes. Yes. And what I would like to do cuz we're talking about you mentioned something about internal politics and and I would like to explore this a little bit because I know that there's this whole there's this next generation that's coming up. And I know probably somebody's going to be listening to this interview or watching this interview. Hopefully. And they're going to be like, you know what? I want to get in this game, right? What John is doing, I want to do it as well. So for those people that are coming up right now that are following in our footsteps, what would be like maybe a couple of key pieces of advice that you would give them? It's a good question. I touched on some of them earlier. Number one is you got to be a bit of an HR ninja to find your way to the right spot. And you shouldn't just bank on going through the process and right. expecting the result. And that's a lesson I've learned along the way, too, is that I said I came from a family of kind of people who are very kind of law-abiding and respectful of the rules and the process and all that. And I think those are good attributes. But at the same time, you'll realize that in real life, you you can follow the rules. You can follow the recipe. You can do all the right things. You can expect the outcome to be what you want it to be, but it's not sometimes going to be that. And it's how you respond to that and position yourself, which is also going to help you your career. So the first thing is be a bit of an HR ninja. Find that commonality with somebody in the organization of where you want to be or who you want to be like and and reach out to them and build that connectivity. Somebody went to your school, somebody went to your hometown, or reach out and offer some insight. That's the, hey, I'm looking to get on your calendar to have coffee. Great, happy to do that. But if somebody actually comes with something that's going to make my 
day job a little bit easier, make me smarter for it. You're delivering value. And yes. when you deliver value, there's always a home for you. Yes. So I think that's a big part of it. And also understand, again, you can follow the right playbook, but sometimes the results won't be what you want them to be, what you expected them to be, or frankly, in some cases, what they should be. And it really comes down to how you respond to that. You never want to be doing anything out of protest. You want to be running towards something, not from something. Definitely. And one thing that I would also like to explore here is that you've made some leapfrogs throughout your life to get to where you are today, which is fantastic. Opportunity comes, take advantage of it. Yeah. What do you think the future holds? For me or in general? Ah, for you. Oh, I don't know. Like I said, I'm just the Forrest Gump of finance. I kept on running and <laughs> I don't plan to slow down anytime soon, but I've, I'm very fortunate. Like I said, I have two young children, a five-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter and a wonderful wife. And I used to spend probably more weekends than I should in the office. And it was because I wanted to, not because I had to. Right. But I, I've certainly reprioritized part of my life as well. And so spending a lot of time with my kids at these formative ages is where you'll probably find me when I'm not, when I'm not putting in my nine to five every week or every day. But, but I got to say, there's a, you watch the news and it's easy to get depressed on all the things that are going on in the state or outside of the state or around the world. All I have to do is go visit my five-year-old's preschool, and now he's going into kindergarten. And that gets you excited about the future. They're yes. sharp. They're smart. They're excited. And as long as we can make sure we don't leave too big of problems for them to clean up, I'm excited about the future of not only this state, but this country as well. Absolutely love that. And the final question, John, is if somebody's listening to this, they want to maybe connect with you online, or maybe they want to follow like the policies or what's going on. What would be the best way for them to do that? Yeah, sure. The door is always open to any Michigander, anyone really, but any Michigander. And one of the things I love about being a Michigander is that all Michiganders look out for Michigander. So yeah, if there's yes, a, we do. And that's why I love what you're doing as well. And you're talking to a lot of extraordinary Michiganders. And I've just had the good fortune of being around extraordinary people in extraordinary places. And I don't think any of that's rubbed off on me, but I <laughs> but I am here to help and be of assistance in any way to anybody from the greatest state in the union. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can always find me on like LinkedIn, John Tuttle on there, or you can send me an email and I'll, to friends of you, I'll give out my personal email. to John at NYSC.com, J-O-H-N at NYSC.com. So reach go. out anytime. Please, no spam. <laughs> Don't put me on any mailing list, but happy to, happy to be a resource in any way possible because people were to me and life's about paying it forward and making sure that people have the opportunities that they all deserve. And so to the extent I can be helpful and help them achieve what they're looking to do, I'm here to do that. John, it's been an absolute treat having you on the show today. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. It, it's a pleasure. And thanks for doing what you do each and every day. And I'm an avid listener of the podcast now. You've obviously had Hi. some some friends of mine on here as well. But the more we can talk about the great things great people are doing, the more they should be celebrated. Awesome. So. And thank you for that. Really do appreciate it. And for our audience, you can always roll on over to TotalMichigan.com. Click on John's interview and get all the information that he mentioned above. We'll see you next week. We talk to another ordinary Michigander doing some pretty extraordinary things. We'll see you then.